Okay, you might remember last class that I was talking to you sort of ironically about Greek philosophy. I was, we were going over the allegory of the cave in not much detail, but many of you were familiar with it, which is great. Um, but uh, remember, the point that we were making was we were beginning to address a solution to the problem. The problem being uh, slavery to sin, the sort of lack of control that St. Augustine experiences when he's wrestling with himself in the garden, and you know the lack of control that we all experience when we wrestle with ourselves and all the things we do in our lives, all of our, um, our um, striving in our spiritual lives, in our moral lives, striving to overcome our vices and develop the virtues, cultivate good habits instead of bad ones. We're trying to find a solution and answer to this problem. And a lot of you have thrown out good, good ideas. Some of you have thrown out other ideas. And uh, we're kind of trying to get a, like, but no one in this room, and probably myself included, it's like no one has, I would say, a deep enough understanding of an answer to this problem. Because it's, um, it's a fundamental one. It's a profound problem that demands a profound answer. And we can spend our whole lives kind of trying to get at that answer. And that's what we're spending the first section of this course trying to do. Yeah. Is there even a solution that we can understand? I think there is. Now, yeah, I think there is. But what's going to be interesting, you'll see, is that the solution will come to, while it is one we can, while it is one we can understand, um, I guess I don't think it's one we can understand fully. And, and that's a little bit like, you know, there in our faith there are a lot of mysteries which are revealed to us. And you can have um, a greater or lesser degree of understanding about that mystery. Let's take, for example, um, the mystery of the Eucharist. Well, the mystery of the Eucharist is a profound mystery, which I don't think we can fully understand in this life. I don't think we can. I mean, it's a miracle, and what's happening there is so profound, so brilliant. It's such an amazing divine work. Um, and it's so far, it's so supernatural. Like, we can't see it that um, we can't fully understand what's happening there, I don't think. However, St. Thomas Aquinas understood the Eucharist like head and shoulders and much, much more uh, above anyone else, certainly in this room. So I just hesitate, because if I say we can't understand it fully, I don't want you to think, oh, okay, so what's the point of trying? Because you can gain deeper understanding. Deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper understanding, which is really valuable for all these mysteries. Um, but it probably won't be fulfilled until the next life. Still, like we can, we can develop a very deep understanding of the answer to this question we're asking. That's what we're trying to do now. Um, so it's it's a worthy endeavor. This isn't wasted time right now. Okay. And I actually think the answer we'll come to will be quite satisfying to you if you're paying attention. Okay. Um, and remember, we were, I was bringing up the Greek philosophers because I was, we sort of started by acknowledging the problem is really a problem of love. The problem is really a problem of love. We don't love God the way we should, which means we don't act right. Okay? And, that's, and that's not something we can directly control. Again, you can't just close your eyes and make yourself love something. It doesn't really work that way. Augustine tried and it didn't work. So I brought up the Greek philosophers because they had this keen insight, which was that the, the key to love, in some ways, is knowledge. That's what we were talking about. The key to escaping the cave, getting out into what is real, moving past the darkness, out into the light. 
getting out of the chains, finding true freedom, being a great man, they said was knowledge. And this holds very, very well to, I think, to our personal experience in everyday life. I always ask this question. Same thing happens every time. I'm probably asking this last year at one point. How many of you love my Uncle Jeremy? There's always one. I knew it was Addison. Addison. There's always one, one person who raises their hand. No, you don't, Addison. But <laughs> how many of you love my Uncle Jeremy? You're all, no one's, hardly anyone's raising their hands. Because, and why? Why not? He's a great guy. Why don't you love my Uncle Jeremy? You don't know him. Yeah, exactly. You don't know him. And you might think that's just like a relatively unimportant little trick I just played, but no, think about that for a second. What that tells you about human nature. You cannot love what you do not know. And I imagine, like, if, did you love your friends before you met them? Yes. Look, you, and, and, and it, it works in degrees, too. So first you meet your friends and say, like, hi, I'm John. Oh, hi, I'm Jerry. And John and Jerry meet. And they had never met before, and they didn't even know each other existed, so they certainly didn't love each other. And then they meet. And maybe pretty quickly they can develop a friendship. Actually, let's use a better example. Let's use John and, and um, Mary. John and Mary meet. Sorry, John, I don't mean you, John. But, um, we should probably use a, a name that isn't someone in this class. I want George. To Mary. George and Mary. They meet, and something really beautiful happens. They don't, at first they don't love each other, and then they talk. They, maybe they go on a date. They, we, and what do we call this? We say this, this is getting to know each other. And what happens? They get to know each other, and the next thing we say is, they fell in love. And the same thing happens on a friendship level. It's like two different kinds of love op operating there, I think. But still, it's love. And we can see the clear connection. The more they get to know each other, the more they're able to love each other. Same thing happens with your friendships. You first meet your friends, and you're like, yeah, I met this guy. I don't know if he's any, any good. He's, yeah, do I love him? Uh, I don't know about that. But, but then you, you get to know your friends more and more. You spend time together. You talk to each other. You watch what they do. You observe how they handle different situations in their lives. And one day they do something that you know makes you really laugh really hard or makes you think really deeply or just, I don't know, makes you happy. They compliment you, whatever it might be. And suddenly you realize, oh, this is another person that I'm actually seeing now, knowing for the first time. And what happens is love flourishes, like real friendship love. And that's so valuable. And the better, the more vulnerable you are with your friends, the more like you let them get to know you, really you, the more that love can grow. And in the, in the um, George and Mary example, that, that knowledge and love can build to the point of, Full knowledge and full love, like total self-giving love. Married, uh, a married couple, they know each other better than anyone else. They share everything. They give everything they have. All their possessions are in common. To the point where they actually, they, they, they have such complete knowledge and love for each other that in a way they own each other, which is a beautiful thing. So you see how this works, like more knowledge leading to more love. And it happens with other stuff too, like food and books. 
no one, no one loves pizza until they tried it. Like if you were to talk to someone that's never tried pizza and you say, "Do you love it?" They'd be like, "I don't, I don't know anything about it." Do you love pistachio ice cream? I, I don't know. I've never had it. You say, "Well, maybe I, I, I kind of knew I was gonna love it." All you can love about a thing is what you know about it. So for it, maybe you know that pistachio ice cream is is green. And you love the color green, so you're like, I kind of love it, even though I haven't had it. Yeah, well, you love it like a little bit, because you know a little bit about it. But then you eat the pizza, you eat the pistachio ice cream, now you really know it, and you can then really love it. You read a book, no one loves a book until they've read it. You read the book, you get to know it, you read the book six times, you start to love that book. Um, you know, th this, is, this, this idea of the relationship between knowledge and love is really fundamental. Which is why, you know, human beings, I think we all have this kind of idea that the head and the heart are two exceptionally important things. We associate the head with knowledge, and we associate the heart with love. We think those, our brain and our heart are like the two most important organs of the body. There's something very poetic happening there. But I think it's significant that we all think that way. The knowledge, our knowledge of something, our mind, it gives the heart access to its object. So it's through knowledge that we grow in love. And this would be a very helpful thing to tell St. Augustine or your friend as they're wrestling with themselves in the garden and pulling out their hair because they can't control their actions. It's like, look, it's three simple steps. Knowledge leads to love, leads to action. Knowledge leads to love, leads to action. Can't emphasize that enough. And so Augustine's frustrated with his actions, but he's focusing just on love and saying and trying to control his love directly. But what he has to do is gain knowledge. He has to gain knowledge. And even the, the again, the Greek philosophers, I think they had that insight. It's through philosophy and education, the growth in knowledge, that you see what's good and true, represented by that burning sun that you can kind of look at, but not quite. Get not perfect understanding, but still some level of understanding. The guy who's outside in the cave, like seeing the light and trying to look at the sun, has a way deeper level of understanding than all the people still stuck inside, trapped in chains. And so it's that knowledge, knowledge to love to action is really present there in the allegory of the cave, I think. Um, and it's really helpful for us in, in trying to answer this question. Okay, so there's there's the second step we're gonna make and we have like just one third step to take here I think um, we address the problem we look at kind of the next part of the solution which is knowledge but now I have to just share with share with you one other little problem maybe maybe some of you are picking up on it remember the the issue was we don't love God as we should we don't love God as we should and so here's and here's the tricky thing Presumably the solution, as we just described it, would be you have to get to know God, right? Then you could love him more. But what's tricky about that? Yeah. How do you get to know God? Yeah, very simply, how do you get to know God? It's not immediately obvious how you would do that. Because when you're... you're like, I don't know, you can like look around for him. Like, where is he? <laughs> where are you at? Church. No. Did you read the Bible? No. It's like you gotta you need to find a place, you need to find out out where he is. But 
it's not just like the basic, like, I can't see him, where is he? There's something else that makes this tricky. Like, even if you could see him, is there some reason to think it might be really hard to get to know him? He's kind of unknowable. He's kind of unknowable. Nice. Yeah. It's another huge problem. I mean, it, it, that's not only a problem, but if you're looking at it very practically, if you're, the goal is to get to know him, the fact that he's kind of unknowable is real. It's a real issue. <laughs> and I like that you said kind of, too. Oh, yeah, because you have something. Yeah, right. Let me, let, me put this, let me put this to you. See if you find this compelling. Some of you are like, oh, can't you get to know God? Well, there's some reason to believe it might be really hard. Here's why. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that, um, that God breathed out the stars. That's a metaphor. Does anyone know um, how, many, how many Earths could fit inside the sun? This is kind of a harsh transition, but okay, 131 says Blaze. Blaze says 131. 30. 30. 30. 300. What did you say? 26 Earths inside the sun. 45. 30,000. 30,000. Wow, it took a real jump. Um, Earth's inside the sun. By the way, the, the Earth is a planet and the sun is what? A star. A star. Okay, good. Okay, well, I'll give you the answer. This is approximate. It's not exactly right, but um, it is. The answer is about one million Earths. That's what? Yeah, I feel like I said like a million. Wait, how big is the sun? The sun is one million times the size of Earth. That's freaky, man. That's freaky, man. Imagine it. Try to imagine. I'll help you. visualize that by the way that is um how many about about again this is like kind of rough estimates but how many golf balls could fit inside a school bus so imagine a school bus full of golf balls that are spilling out the windows that's about a million that is how many of the planet earth could fit inside the sun that's how big our sun is, planet compared to the star. Wait, so this says the sun is like, how big is other stuff that's bigger? Good question. So Will said, and the sun's not even that big, and Lucy said, how big is other stuff that's bigger? Which is, I love that question. That's a good question. Well, there are other stars in the universe. The, the sun, is the sun a big star? Nah, no, kind of small. I mean, I mean, not compared to other stars. Like some stars are like a million Earths inside it. I mean, not compared to other stars. No, there's it's like halfway. Stars Wait, yeah. who wants to guess? Does anyone know the name of the biggest star that we know of? Yeah. How big is a black hole? To the big, Betelgeuse is huge, oh, not the biggest. But oh, I know. 
The yeah, biggest story I know of, according to my research, which is, I'm clearly venturing into academic territory that's not my own, but I think this is trustworthy. According to my research, the biggest star that we know of is called V.Y. Canis Majoris. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. V.Y. Canis Majoris. It's the biggest one we know of. Doesn't it fit like more than a million suns? All right, shh. Quiet, please. The blue earth. Quiet, please. Okay, called V.Y. Canis Majoris. Who wants to take a guess, and please just go one at a time, instead of just shouting things out again. Who wants to take a guess? How many Earths could fit inside V.Y. Canis Majoris? So it's one million Earths in the sun. Who has a guess for this one? We'll start with Addison. Ten what? Ten trillion. That's a big number. Addison is feeling Addison's feeling bold. Um, okay, Warren. Two billion. Two billion. Two billion. Hard to visualize. Um, I'll help you visualize the answer in the end. Clayton. Hundred billion. Hundred billion. That's still not not anywhere near Addison's. Would you say ten trillion? <laughs> but we're still big. We're still big. Uh, Gabriel. Uh, at least two. Wow. Okay. Well. Okay. I'm a. Well. Two hundred fifty billion, John. Twenty million. Twenty million. Um, five hundred billion. Five hundred billion. Right, Big numbers. Seventeen million. Six hundred billion. Okay. Um, uh, I want you to have a piece of paper. I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna write. It, have you write out the number? I'm gonna just list the digit so you can see it visually. No, not a hundred zero. That would be great. Here's how many Earths could fit inside Vy Canis Majoris. Again, this is an estimate, but I think it's. I think it's pretty decent. Okay, um, three, seven, two, nine, zero. Zero, 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 zero. So for those of you keeping track, it's not anywhere near Addison's 10 trillion because it's so, so, so much bigger. So it's three. It's so, so, so much more. Three something, seven hundred twenty-nine. It's almost four quadrillion. What? Okay, you transcend the trillion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I don't know, ask that to Mr. Witty. Okay, here's the point. You want the visualization? You want the visualization? No. We'll do it with golf balls again. That many golf balls, Will says in a football stadium, fill a football stadium with golf balls. No. Fill. The entire state of Texas, four feet deep with golf balls. What? That is how many planet Earths would fit inside the largest star that we know. The entire state of Texas, four feet deep in golf balls. What I'm trying to get you to realize, just how small we are. down. What I'm trying to get you to realize. I'm trying to get you to realize, yes, Blaze, how small you are, but also 
but also how how transcendent, how great, how magnificent, how unknowable God is. Scripture tells us that God breathed out the stars. Not just that one, but all of them. It's just, it's that easy. And I'll actually tell you this, this is, and this is real technical language I'm using here. It wasn't that easy for God. It was actually infinitely easier. That is to say, all God has to do is will something, and it is. God can do, he, he is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. He could make all of those stars, all the stars in the entire universe, and a, a million more universes just the same, in less than an instant just by willing it to be. And think about you, you tiny little speck of dust, walking around on the surface of this planet Earth. And you think, and you stand there in your arrogance, and you say, I could get to know God. How well are you going to get to know God? And please don't take this as being like a, a rejection of the real Christian hope that exists. But this is, this is in some ways what you have to understand in order to understand what the Christian hope really is. Which is mind-blowing. But God being that much greater than us, that much more powerful than us. The idea that you could even approach him. The idea that he would hear you, that you could hear him is an idea so extreme, so far beyond the imaginings of any of history's greatest philosophers prior to Christianity. It's extraordinary. It should blow your mind when you realize who you're dealing with, what you're dealing with. It's, it's shocking. I love so much, I'll, I'll just read to you a little bit from scripture here because I love the way this is summed up at the, toward the end of the book of Job. And some of you might know the story, but all you really need to know for the, my purposes here is that Job was a man who, he was a very pious man, a very good man, who suffered a great deal, and uh, he's a righteous man that God ultimately rewards and commends for his righteousness. But at one point amidst his sufferings, Job does dare to question God. Uh -oh. Basically, he kind of asks God to explain things. He kind of asks God to explain things. And he's, he's a little bit accusing God. Like, why do you let me suffer so much when I've been good to you? Here's the way God responds to Job. This is in uh, chapter 38. <laughs> chapter 38. It says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb 
when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed bounds for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and it is dyed like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it? to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which have reserved for the time of trouble, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground put forth grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew, from whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the hoarfrost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth bolts of lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the clouds or given understanding to the mists? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass? and the quads cling tightly together. Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens, or lie in wait for their hiding places? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? He goes on. This goes on for a couple chapters, actually. What's the response? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much it, please. Yeah. That he's awesome. Saying, look, you're questioning me in something that I've done. Who are you to question me? Who are you to question what I've done? I like that line because it's about the stars. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? The Pleiades is a group of stars. You can see it in the night sky when it's dark enough. 
or loose the cords of Orion, Orion being that famous constellation that you see around here, especially during winter. It's like, can you, can you establish the course of the stars in the heavens? And the answer, of course, is no, no, no. And I love, I love Job's response in the end. Job ends up saying to him, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. So what he's saying is, I'd heard, about, I'd heard about you, God, but now I see more clearly just how magnificent you are, just what you've done. And I'm going to repent for having questioned you in dust and ashes. Okay, so the bottom line is that the thing you have to know, knowledge is the key to love, but where in the world can we go to find knowledge of God? How can we see God? How can we get to know him? How can we sit down and talk with him? How can, how can he be revealed to us? That's the fundamental question you should be asking, because a lot of you kind of assume the answers because you've been told them many times. But you've got to start to see how magnificent those answers really are. And it might help you see how very practical this is, too. And just what an invitation you've been given to enter into this mystery. So I gave you a handout that I asked you to read for homework. And it's called, I think, How Does Christ Help Us? That's the next step. So this introductory kind of section is, is just about over. And we're going to now talk about the solution. And then we'll spend the rest of the year contemplating it, trying to understand it, meditating on it, reading it. Um, you know, you can think about this, one last little analogy for you. You could think about this a little bit like, um, a little bit like a king who banishes a criminal. The ruler of the kingdom, he's offended by some peasant. So he banishes that peasant from the land. You're like that peasant who's been banished, more like the descendant of that peasant. You've been banished from the land where the king dwells. You've lost your access to the king in his kingdom. And now imagine that peasant says, well, I'd like to, I'd like to know and love the king. I'd like to get to know the king again. Well, that's not so simple. You no longer live where the king lives. And so it's going to be very, very difficult in order to get to know him. In fact, impossible for you because you've been banished. And by law, you're not allowed back there. But there is one possibility for you. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, there's one possible way in which you could get to know your king. Based with that analogy, anyone want to take a stab? What's the way in which you could get to know the king again? Maybe like send a message. Send a message? Well, I'm not sure if the king's gonna hear the banished person's little peasant's message. Gabriel. Is it like to make yourself a good peasant? Make yourself a good peasant? Maybe, but I don't know if the king would even know you're good. You're nowhere near him anymore. You're banished. You can't go back into the land. John. Ask somebody else who knows him. Ask someone else who knows him. 
Uh, maybe. I don't know that how, how that would help you get to know him, though. It didn't help him accept you. There's another possibility. You're all saying, you do this, you do this, you do this. What's the possibility? The other one. Ooh. But that's you having someone else do something. What if it's not about what you do? It's about what someone else is. Who? Okay. There's the possibility. What if... What if the king, in his mercy, came to you? What if the king, in his mercy, stooped to your level and went to go meet and reconcile with the peasant who had offended him? You can't get in. What if he comes to you? Well, that would be shocking. What if the God who breathed out the stars came to meet you? For the purpose of establishing a personal relationship with you. Do you start to see how amazing this really is? What if that God, whom you offended, entered into your world to come meet you? That's what we're going to start to, to contemplate.